0: to another episode of Green and Gritty.
1: We are four master's students trying to make environmental education a little more accessible.
2: We are so excited that you joined us today in our little corner of the internet. So stick around, this is going to be a fun
3: episode.
1: Hello Green and Gritty friends. This week's episode is a true kickoff to the grittier season we promised for season two. Today is all about corporate greenwashing and greed. This episode is going to be a great way to touch up on greenwashing practices and get back to the basics, and then dive right into the call-out and shaming of some of the big bad corporations. Our team has been waiting for this one. Get ready for some passion and anger as we call out these corporations.
2: Also wanted to shout out to Mara Makai, who was the one that messaged us asking for us to go into a little deeper breakdown of greenwashing and actually provide more examples and gave us the inspiration for the episode of Corporate Callouts. So shout out to Mara. And if you have any like topics that we've discussed in the past that you want us to go into further detail about, or if you have new ideas for future and upcoming episodes, please like send us a DM. Comment on one of our pictures. Um, if you know us personally, like, you can harass us via, via text. It's totally fine. Um, yeah, we definitely appreciate it. So thank you.
1: As we said, today is all about corporate call-out. Although we had an episode discussing the basics of greenwashing, we wanted to get grittier this season and really get into the issues by calling them out, hence our episode title. This is an important topic for me and our team, and I think anyone really, because we oftentimes find ourselves criticizing the consumers of these companies rather than acknowledging how we really are a smaller part of the problem. But I think it's a really good way to shine light on these companies and put them under the microscope. As well, we want to provide some ways for us to move away from falling into their trap. I'm going to try and focus on a few examples here, such as H&M, which is another great example of fast fashion, and a few more ways companies have taken part in greenwashing. So as discussed in our previous greenwashing slash green misinformation episode, Greenwashing seems to be taking over companies and the marketing world. The term was actually coined as early as 1986 by uh, Jay Westerveld in a literary magazine. Um, It's basically coined to mean that companies can often trick consumers into thinking their brand and their products are sustainable and eco-friendly by using keywords, colors, tricky claims, and other forms of this style of marketing. Um, And this is actually a growing problem with consumers and the general public being more concerned about the general environmental impact of their lives in the products they use. So greenwashing can actually be a great tool to lure these environmental conscious consumers in, so people like us, our listeners, and anyone who really cares about the environment. We aren't asking every company to be perfect, however, we do require they actually be transparent with their consumers and clear regarding their intentions towards sustainability and what they're actually doing. Intent is great, it's a great start, but it's not If it's not the reality, then the public really needs to know that. To start, I'm going to throw like a quick example for everyone. So Starbucks, everyone knows that everyone loves it. Uh, They committed to not provide straws with the exception of like a Frappuccino, for example, and instead create sippable lids. So we for sure have all seen them by now. If If you're not a Starbucks drinker, you've for sure seen one, like a consumer with one in their hand. Um, and this seemed to be a very trendy move at the time because, you know, everyone was moving away from plastic straws, you know, save the turtles. But um, it, they actually were really criticized because rather than this being an environmental decision, it seemed to just be their trend decision because it came to light the new lids actually contained more plastic than their previous lids with their straw combined. So the although the movement was set in, you know, getting rid of the straw shape, it actually was still considered a major greenwashing move because, you know, plastic is still a huge issue for our environment. Uh, I'm going to talk about our big guy now. So I don't want to talk too much um, because I know Taylor has some juicy content for us. But I want to just like use this as an example of greenwashing more than anything. So it's H&M. So um, I'm sure we've seen the current ads in sustainability and, you know, how they're trying to make a change. So that's why I want to elaborate a little bit on that. So this one's a little bit hard to discuss in current terms because, as I mentioned, they've had set, like, so many new goals. They want to partner with an environmental and sustainable fabric brand. Fabric they want to reduce their emissions by 2030. Um, a few other ones that are recent include using 100% recycled materials for all their clothing products also by 2030. So these are all, like, massive goals that were, like, recently set for a 10-year period. Um, So that's why it's a little bit difficult to say, oh, you know, you're greenwashing. But we're going to look at their track record, which they don't really address. So based on that, I don't have high hopes for their goals. And just to be clear, H&M's track record consists of a few issues. Their first issue are an ethics, which um, I know that's something we want to discuss more in terms of fast fashion. But I do think it's an integral part of understanding greenwashing as well because sustainability and ethics are inherently linked. But um, yeah, as I mentioned, they are a fast fashion brand, simple enough. They don't have safe factories for their workers. They don't pay their workers something even close to a living wage, even though they promised to do so almost five years ago now, which still has not happened. And then tying that to the environmental aspect, as I said, since they're linked, um, fast fashion is always bad for the environment. So that's in terms of production, waste, materials, emissions, and there's so many countless other reasons. There's not really one aspect of it that can be given a check mark to be like that's okay. And they remain a fast fashion brand. They have not made any steps to say you know like we're trying to move away from this. We want to become um, you know a little bit more better in those terms. So uh, that final issue I want to talk about in terms of their track record is their recycled clothing program, which I'm sure anyone who's shopped at H&M knows this. They have a large box, either at their front or their middle of their store, and it's basically to put in any clothes that you don't use anymore, and they say, hey, we're going to recycle this. Like, we want less clothes to go into the waste. They don't, we don't want it to go to the bins anymore. We want to recycle our materials. Even if they're not our brand, throw them in the box. So I've actually taken part in that because I was like, whoa, this is so cool, like at the time. And then I've been reading that they've actually only recycled under 35% about what goes into the bins. And they haven't made it clear if it's because of the type of materials going into the bins or is it like because they're just not doing their part? Like they're, I don't want to use the term lazy, but you know, in terms of, you know, we have this much, like how much can we really get through? So that's like a serious issue, like they've made a promise, so like it feels like you should kind of hold up to that or just be transparent that a portion of this will be to recycled, but not all of it. So like I said, they've made promises for the future, so it's definitely a brand to keep our eye on to see if they do take the plunge and they act on it and they make that sustainable transition, but... They will remain somewhat of a big bad guy in our books until they do act on it because they haven't upheld their promises before. So that's the issue I'm seeing. So some fast facts on some other companies and their greenwashing. I have a few. So everyone knows, you know, Tide, you know, you use it to clean your clothes, you use it in your washer dryer. Um, they have this brand called Pure Clean. And when Pure Clean came out as like a sect of Tide or like a product of Tide, they made the massive claim that their formula and product would be 100% plant-based. And that therefore, because of this, it's better for the environment, it's better for your health, like so many claims in terms of being that plant-based. Then a NAD inquiry in August, 2020 was conducted and really tried to investigate, you know, is this really plant-based? Like, how much of it isn't plant-based? And they found it was actually untrue. So they, they didn't really publish the amount that it was untrue, but it was definitely not 100% plant-based to the point where they had to update their formula and their practices. Um, and I guess to try to recover from that, they now claim that their formula is even made with renewable energy, um, I could not find anything actually discounting that claim as of right now. So we'll see. We should keep our eye on it for sure. Um, but yeah, that's not really the best feeling when you think you're doing something not only good for the environment, but good for your health. And then it's untrue. Okay, the second one, will if anyone's listening from the UK, I know that corn, I think that's how you pronounce it, vegan foods are very popular in the UK. Like it's like a popular like... Meat substitute, like I guess how Yves is here. Um, so the ASA, which is an Advertising Standards Authority, had an inquiry into them in September 2020. And basically they were accused and proven to be lying and representing false claims on reducing their apartment footprint. And they weren't actually doing anything of that sense. And um, so it was just basically a fake claim, which is terms greenwashing. That's just straight up greenwashing. Uh, I know I'm listing off a lot of examples here, but I think these are all kind of like ones that relate to the daily things that we use. So who brewed a coffee this morning or if you're listening in the evening, like when's the last time you brewed a coffee and if you used coffee pods? So coffee pods are like a super popular thing right now. I'm guaranteeing most people use them, whether it's a Tassimo or a Keurig or an Espresso. But um, Kauai, I think that's how you say that as well, also had a NAD inquiry in May 2017 after stating their coffee pods were 100% compostable. So basically, you use them, you put them in the compost, you feel really great about yourself that you're not creating more plastic waste. And then they really, really pushed this one by saying that actually they're only certified to decompose at industrial facilities, not specifying what those are, what that is made up of in any sense so really they're not compostable and you're probably doing more harm by putting them in your compost bin and being completely unclear and not transparent about that so that one was actually really upsetting for a lot of people because i know for myself like sometimes i feel guilty with using a coffee pot and seeing that plastic go to waste it's like very single use and um, I've seen these compostable before, and I'm always like, oh, this is amazing. So it kind of makes you a little weary of how you're going to brew your coffee in
2: the morning and if it's really falling up to its claims. You were saying that um, you feel bad when you you use the plastic, but it might be better off for the mm-hmm. environment than the compostable one that'll mess up your compost if you yeah, put it in. Yeah. There, there is a way to get, a, get around the coffee pot, guilt. I don't know. Coffee pod guilt. (laughs) But basically what you can get are those refillable Keurig cups. So the ones like you can get on Amazon, you can get them either stainless steel, you can get them in like high grade plastic, but it's reusable. And basically, yeah, what you do is you find you get your regular coffee grounds and you just fill that up every morning and then you close the lid and you put in your Keurig and run it like normal and then you don't have to buy coffee pods ever you don't have to buy plastic or compostable it's just you buy your coffee grounds and if you want to take it zero waste all the way you can go to bulk barn and refill right. coffee containers like sometimes when we think zero waste we think we have to find like a zero waste store where sometimes things are more expensive or whatnot or you have to travel right. far but like a lot of your zero waste options are at bulk barn and you can just like refill and like go there bring your old coffee like container or whatever or one of the bulk barn containers and refill that and use that um so that you're not constantly buying the big like I don't want to name any but you know like the Folgers like yes, big of course. containers yes, that's yeah a- just every morning it's a part of your like one step routine is yeah. just fill a reusable pod put that in and Good to go.
1: Actually, that's that's amazing. We should see if we can find. Well, you might already know it, like a link to purchase that because yeah, I can and like try I can, to like put it in the episode or description for everyone to. I mean, up.
2: I don't like to link Amazon, but for financial <laughs> purposes, if people need Amazon, you can right. find it there. You can find them almost like anywhere. I've I think even some grocery stores would have like have them in like one of the aisles. Well, like in the you definitely aisle,
1: have sold me. I'm not gonna lie because as I. Like, I was, I'm one of those people who have been using the compostable pods and, um, that would make me feel a lot better to not have to research and just be able to go to Bulk Barn and reuse my pod and know exactly what's going on.
2: Yeah. And even if you don't want to buy your coffee grounds, grinds, coffee beans, whatever <laughs> at Bulk Barn, like you don't have to, you can just, you can get your regular like big old pot of coffee, but at least you're not using having waste every cup of coffee that you have. You right. just use the reusable pods. Totally. They're pretty fun. And they're super easy to clean,
1: I, That's what I was going to say. It's probably not so bad to clean if it's yeah, just, Yeah, we've you know. had
2: them
0: – we've had, like – I think we have two or three of them because we go through coffee, like, we depend on it. Um, it's always a like caffeine addiction <laughs> over here. But we have – I know definitely we have two of them, and we, we've been using them, I would say – almost every single day depending on my parents use the Keurig the most out of the the three of us and I think they definitely just pop it in the dishwasher I think but then or just wash it Mm. and it's no problem
1: well no thank you for that that's helpful and kind of breaks up my big long lesson that's going on today (laughs) so I'm really glad that we had some different voices uh, chiming in. And then I know we've also talked about different car companies claiming that they ha- you know, they're going green and we've talked about the Volkswagen example, but that's not the only example. So we've had a few inquiries in lawsuits including ones that are for Mercedes, Volkswagen, Chevrolet, Ford, BMW. So that's a lot of situations of these car companies kind of gaslighting us into thinking you know you can drive your car and you know feel good about what you're doing every day rather than like a traditional like system and they're actually all untrue so it's a great marketing tactic right because a lot of people want to make that change and they want to feel good about what they're doing but unfortunately um, a lot of these were actually untrue to a certain extent so companies continue to blatantly lie to us about their practices. So why do we have to go such link- to such lengths to find truth in their claims? That's, I think, really what sits the worst with myself and probably all of us, that we have to, you know, research and have a whole episode dedicated to why um, these claims are untrue. I'm almost done, you know, letting everyone know my update on greenwashing and um, my I'm going to end on a positive note. Um, so... Back when we were researching this episode, Kendra discussed some about Burt's Bees, and we were all really interested because, you know, we all view it as a really, not necessarily green, but, you know, like a natural company. And we're all curious, like, how do they stand up to those claims? Like, those are one of the ones that we were really curious about, and Kendra kind of sparked our minds there a little bit. So I did some digging in honor of that, and I like I said, I do want to give an honorable mention is like as we said, we were like thinking about green products and that was kind of the first one that came to our mind. I found an article that cited Burt's Bees not having sent waste to the landfill since 2011. So the most gritty detail I have on this fact is an article from 2010 stating that the company has achieved zero waste to the landfill and reduced its waste stream from 344 tons in 2006 to 66 tons in the 12 months ending in the end, of, almost to the end of the year. So that's a huge change in a very short period of time, and kind of upholds the claims that since 2011 they're not sending any more waste to their landfill. And they're also very transparent about their ethical and responsible sourcing, um, and you know how they're achieving that and what they're doing, as well as becoming how they're becoming carbon neutral. And they were actually able to achieve that significantly faster than their original goal year that they outlined um, when they like first made the goal. And their website's like super helpful in like outlining the ways that they remain unsustainable and like how they wish to address that or resolve that moving forward. And all in all, that's not greenwashing. Kudos to them. So like the, the main issue here with greenwashing is when false claims are made. So the fact that they do outline where they're still missing and how they're going to change is like a huge key as to what we want to see. We want to we see how they're going to act on it. They want We want to acknowledge that. I don't know much about their past emissions or ethics, I would say, pre the 2010 article. Um, but it is refreshing to see a large brand actually be honest and treat, achieve goals true to the, the brand. Uh, a disclaimer is I know they're now owned by Clorox, which could be an issue because we don't know too like I don't know too much about Clorox and their ethics but again they also have a section on their website and they address this as to how does it affect their practices now that they are they're owned by a bigger company and a lot of the extra research like away from their website really supports their claims so um I was really happy to see that and Again, it's, t- it's tough to comment on uh, being owned by Clorox and like if they do super well in terms of that. But all in all, a great example of how you know greenwashing can be conquered and you can really stay true to your claims. So just to keep track of everything discussed here, a good resource is the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, where greenwashing is actually regulated. So they're a government agency that has a goal to keep consumers informed about the claims and practices of businesses. Um, something else is called the green guides, which is a really good set of guidelines about greenwashing. So if you ever like want to brush up or really know like what are like the top three things you want to look for, that's a really great way. So that's just like a reminder, (laughs) just so if you ever don't want to listen to the whole podcast again, you can just quickly run to the
2: website and just, you know, keep track. Keep stock of what's going on. So, thank you so much, Danielle, for going into further detail about that. I really like the examples that you gave. And I wanted to run back to uh, the Burt's Bees example. So, okay, in our me- episode meeting, we talked about yeah, is Burt's Bees a greenwasher? And the main reason why we had this question is because a lot of their marketing um, emphasizes their products as being like all natural and being sustainable and, um, By default, we were skeptical about that because I feel like oftentimes people equate um, natural with sustainable. When Mm -hmm. in the case, that might not be true. They might be using natural ingredients, but like, how are those ingredients sourced? And how much water is used to get those resources? And how much plastic is used? How much waste is accumulated? So those are questions that when you're asking yourself, is this a greenwashing company? Those are the types of things to think about. So that's what we were doing is, I wonder if Burt's Bees is like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not the bee's knees. So <laughs> it was actually really nice to have an example of a company that we were questioning that's actually not too shabby and doing a good job. So I kind of wanted to ask you as a follow-up question like what was the most shocking or pleasing thing you learned while doing your research for this section?
1: Um so I would say the, the most pleasing I'm gonna start with that was exactly what you were saying that one of the companies that we were discussing and the ones that we were brainstorming actually came to light to be positive. And like I said, mm-hmm. they're not perfect. They do, you know, have some gaps that need to be filled. But again, like we said at the beginning, we're not looking for perfect, we're looking for transparent and we're looking for promises that can be fulfilled and a track record of the promises that they've previously made to be fulfilled, which they kind of checked all those boxes. So that was very pleasing and I thought it was like kind of a perfect example because like I said, they weren't perfect. So it really outlined how like, you know, you can still be super awesome in the green world and... Not have everything done, which is like which is why I was really happy to see that the most shocking I would say was like I already had a bad feeling about coffee pods, which you've kind of like alleviated my stress about that now with your oh, <laughs> with your um, idea of using the reusable one, but it was just disappointing because like I feel like a lot of people like everyone you like a lot of people use drinking coffee like drink a lot of coffee so I just feel like if we can't even have a compostable option like what are we meant to do like that's like really what I felt Mm -hmm. um and to be honest H&M wasn't a huge letdown because I already knew and I, I already was aware of what they do and how they, they don't follow their promises, like it, it's pretty well known. I think even with, with like not in the green world, like even if, if you're just like a like a consumer who's just like active on social media, even because people really call them out on Twitter and Instagram, even. So, um, like it was, it's pretty well known. But um, I'm I'm interested to end again on a positive note. I'm interested in seeing how they how they act on their their new claims because they're huge claims. But I would love to see like what happens there, and I just wish, I wish it could be time to like have a follow up report on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be nice. I was just thinking like it sucks that I didn't realize it was less than thirty five percent of the clothes that, I are, know. that are that are like donated. Um, it makes me have like so many more follow up questions. Like, okay, so what happens to the yeah. rest of those clothes? Like, where do they go? How are they used? Are they thrown out? Are they donated? Like, what happens Incinerated. to them?
1: yeah incinerated just literally like that's that's where my mind goes immediately because it's like you know if they were donating it like that'd be sweet like i would not be against that at all right like you know recycled donated it's it's being repurposed in a way right and i feel like they would sell that like to their consumers like look we're not done recycling but we're donating like i feel like that's what any smart company would do which Mm. you know they clearly are they're very easy to you know make big claims but um yeah like it just I feel like Taylor is right like I feel like it does and they're so unclear about that process that I'm like what is the point I don't I never putting anything in there again like I rather just go find like a little guy out there who's maybe doing that or just continue to donate my clothes because I I, when I like found out about that issue there I started donating like a while ago so
0: see when I first heard about this H&M like dropbox thing i thought it was just h&m products i didn't think they were taking back everything so i thought they were kind of like remanufacturing their own stuff like back into new products so i think if they're what i would assume would be a problem is like if if they're bringing a bunch if they're allowing a bunch of different materials back Mm. that could maybe answer for why only 35 percent of like the total is being like remanufactured or whatever but if that's not the problem, then I it's like, what's going on? But Yeah,
1: so Taylor, to speak to that, mm-hmm. literally their website, I have it, mm-hmm. like I copied it, is drop off your bag of unwanted garments at your local H&M. All textiles are welcome, any brand, any condition, even odd socks, worn out t-shirts, and old sheets.
2: So, awesome. and, yeah.
0: Hmm well then i have some unanswered questions yeah just like just like the lot of us
2: um i had another question um okay i don't know why i led it this way but i wrote it down as should greenwashers be punished and <laughs> yes, like, period yeah Answer, question I mean, answered <laughs> that was okay there are no such thing as dumb questions like that was a dumb question no no i was genuinely curious okay so like like how like what happens how do you what does that look like? And so I was wondering, um, I don't know if you came across this in your research at all, or if anyone else had heard of this, I don't know, I'm not even sure what I'm saying anymore, but um, would greenwashing be considered false advertising? Like, is there a way that you could link those things together? And then are there like legal mechanisms that you can use to hold these companies accountable? Um, So, did you come across any of that in your like research about these companies when you looked up greenwashing and accountability in your research? Like, did you see any legal suits that were successful in holding greenwashers accountable, or at least brought their actions to the legal table at all? Or yeah, can so I the- can
3: I answer the first part of the question?
2: Yeah, yeah. Because okay.
3: in my understanding, to speak to the false advertising part of it, in my understanding, um, when companies like, take part in greenwashing, it's because they have claims that they are doing something good for the environment and that they're right. improving their practices in one way or another. So that could look like H&M um, mm-hmm. saying, we're going to recycle the clothes. And they're technically doing it and they are making good on their claim, but they're not doing it as enough to have an impact. Right. So, like, it could... it Technically, it would be false advertising, but technically, it's also not, too. Because right, right, right. Because they are still doing a little bit of it, so...
1: And you know what, Taylor, you're right, because that's where, you know, when it's not 100% true, that's when you see less action. It's like a loophole. Yeah. Right. Mm. But in terms of the corn vegan foods example, the Advertising Standards Agency, you know, launched their inquiry because they were like, Blatantly stating that they were lying about reducing their carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. So Taylor, I think that speaks to what you're saying. Maybe they were doing 0% of that. And that's, that's right. why the ASA was able to, you know, really make more like claims against them. Whereas with H&M, it can be brushed under the rug more. That's a, that's a really good point, actually, because, so- yeah.
0: I just want to say, like, one more thing that kind of, like, brings the two of you guys, your guys' points kind of together, is if we remember back in the greenwashing episode, Taylor, you talked about, like, the seven sins of greenwashing, mm-hmm. and I think, um, two of them were, like, hidden trade-offs, and then claims were either vague or irrelevant, and according to an article I, uh, found from 2021 January, um, it says that those like two types of claims can misdirect attention and they are misleading rather than false so then those Mm -hmm. greenwashing methods are dishonest but they are not illegal so I think if the claim is like straight up wrong, straight up false, yes false advertising but if it's just misleading and not really like telling the truth like the full truth to the consumer then it's just a misleading and
3: sketchy Situation. And it's more of, like, an ethical issue than a legal yeah, one. Then it, yeah. that
0: Yeah, exactly. I mm-hmm. think that's just, like, the big um, <sighs> tip-off on what's really
3: happening. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. there's obviously not many regulations in place to to regulate. like Ethical. Well, that all
0: depends on yeah. when, where, and what's happening. Like, that's yeah. a different, that's a whole different combo that we can get into <laughs> in another episode that I know we yeah. will be talking about later. But for right now, for today's, like, task is a little bit. Um, we just want to, like, make sure that we're just, like, hitting home on what are some other examples and, like, what's, what else is going on and other players. Mm-hmm. And then next time we'll talk about can we take those players down, like, a David and Goliath moment <laughs> or. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we'll definitely have an episode on, like, what does climate accountability look like? How is it enforced? But I know I asked the question, but I did semi-find my own answer. Um, (laughs) This is something that we'll have to look forward to in the future, and we'll keep tabs on, and it's probably going to be a drawn-out case. But April 22nd, 2021, uh, the city of New York actually filed a lawsuit in the state court against the major big oil companies. Um, So that includes Exxon Mobil, Shell BP, and the American Petroleum Institute. And the lawsuit is alleging that they misled New York consumers about the role that their products play in climate change and for greenwashing. So that is a very, very recent case um, that we'll probably have to break down in really interesting detail for when we do some kind of climate accountability episode Mm -hmm. in the future. So stay tuned. Shall we kick it up a notch? Go for it.
3: All right. Let's do it. Time for the call out. Okay so let's get into it. Nestle the world's largest water bottle producer. um, They are just downright evil and for so many good reasons. So for starters um, (laughs) this really this really messed me up here like hearing them say this but a couple of the company's chairman have said before like in previous interviews that they don't believe that water is a universal basic human right um so just keep that in mind as a frame for this whole discussion like obviously they have since retracted that statement um but they did still say it um and when they got shit on they took it back so yeah keep that in mind um But Nestle, you know, on so many other accounts, they have been accused and in some instances actually proven to be an awful company. They use child labor. They have disgusting pollution habits. um, They use unethical promotions and marketing tactics, um, including price fixing, mislabeling, um, like greenwashing, like we just talked about. Um, And they've manipulated countless Uneducated mothers um, back in the 70s with their baby formula scandal, um, they violated so many environmental codes and regulations like the recent complaint lodged against Nestle for being responsible for over three tons of dead fish found in um, a river right beside um, a Nestle factory in France and um, which resulted in, you know, 14 different species in the water being affected, um, including protected species such as eels and lampreys. I don't know, stuff like this just makes me really upset because, you know, it has a, a direct impact um, on the natural environment and it's it's directly a result of the company's actions. Um, and it infringes upon so many environmental and animal rights and they'll likely just get out of it by, you know, paying a fine or, or settling in the in the lawsuit. Like, there's no actual punishment Um that comes with this kind of pollution and behavior from companies like this. However, I do want to get into Nestle's illegal pumping and selling of water from Canadian wells. Um, so no shock here, but Nestle has water wells all over Canada. Two of their big ones are in Aberfoyle and Aaron. Um, Both are in Ontario and... These wells come with permits. So Nestle's permit to pump groundwater out of Abrafoil actually expired in July 2016. And their permit for Erin expired in August 2017. So it's been a couple years. Actually, it's probably been like, yeah, like five years since four and five years since these permits expired. And since the expiration of the Aberfoyle permit, Nestle has pumped and taken over 2 billion liters of water from that one well. So in the past four years, five years since their permit has expired, over two billion liters of water that they have taken with no permit, which is very, very, very fucked up. Um, they actually hit the two billion two billionth liter um, in July last year in 2020. So it's probably well over that number now. Um, and same goes with the Aaron Well. They've pumped over 1.1 million liters per day since that permit permit expired in 2017. Um, Combined, it's estimated that Nestle takes about 3.6 million liters of water per day from the Six Nations Treaty land. And in California, (laughs) Nestle has been sourcing its water from the San Bernardino National Forest without a permit since 1988, and they've been recently bumped to the front of the queue for permit renewal, which, you know, takes about 18 months. But the, the legislation that's in place allows them to keep working in the meantime as long as they pay a $524 annual fee. So basically what I just said there states that Nestle is taking water and they're pumping water illegally out of these natural resources and they're doing it with expired permits but the legislation has a little bit of a loophole that allows them to keep working as long as they're in queue for permit renewal and they only have to pay like a very 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 small fine of five hundred dollars a year
2: so i have a fun fact <laughs> S- yeah,
3: yeah. say it let's go
2: when i hear nestle i just my, i cringe i feel i feel things yeah um they're not good so I went, I've been born, raised Guelph area, went to school Guelph and um, Aberfoyle is right outside and uh-huh. you have to drive essentially, you drive past the Nestle plant um, on one of the roads leading out to get to Toronto. So if you're trying to get to the highway and you're in the south end, you're going to drive past the Nestle plant. And a uh, fun fact, uh, one of the student unions that I worked for and almost every school group there's constantly protests on campus um to try and you know raise awareness about nestle but it's tradition that when you drive past the plant we all stand up on like the bus or wherever if you're in a car you don't stand up
3: uh <laughs> foot <laughs> off the gas just stand up
2: <laughs> and you just sc- scream you roll down your windows and you scream fuck nestle as loud as you can and that's it's it's tradition
3: i stand behind that i will gladly <laughs> do that every time i see a Nestle plant.
2: I'll be honest, I
0: probably did that not knowing because there was a roundabout <laughs> around the Nestle thing. I don't like roundabouts, and I was late to go meet my friend at her new place And when she went
3: to Guelph, and
0: I was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's,
3: like, it's just what you. comes out of Nestle, you know? It brings those feelings out of us. Oh my god, I hate, awesome.
0: I hate roundabouts. I know they're supposed to be safer, but... I'm just not used to them. Anyways, <laughs> uh, so quick discussion question for the group and audience. If you want to audibly participate when you're listening, like, feel free. Um, so fees never seem to work. They have been they've come to be seen as the price of doing business. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly illustrated here. Um, so what could be done instead? I don't know. We're probably not going to come up with the solution right now. But what are some like out of the box thinking? Like, how could we enforce corporations to stop stop this behavior stick to a contract when it expires it's done like no it doesn't matter if you're in a queue or not yeah how do we make them like respect the land and the resources that they are clearly exploiting while they're like impacting these communities
3: it needs to have real impact on them like mm-hmm. it needs to actually affect uh-huh. them five hundred dollars a year is not gonna affect nestle who makes saying. billions yeah. and billions yeah. of dollars probably is a day 500
2: like yeah
3: do you know where that yeah. number came from yeah i do have a source here
2: okay but if somebody what i just want to know is why why does it seem that the law holds the working person or the general like renter to more accountability than nestle like if someone misses their rent your lights would be turned off you would you'd be kicked out or whatever happens if you miss an electricity bill or water bill or whatever it'd be shut off so why like can we not shut off their, like, electricity? Is, like, your permit's done. Like, you yeah. can't well, they, still be harvesting here. Why can't we just... Why won't they just be like, you're done? Lobbying.
0: <laughs> lobbying. Power how off. Do you stop How do you stop lobbying? Can we stop lobbying? Because, like, I'm not even gonna... Like, obviously, giant-ass corporations have their powers to influence government bodies. That's One exactly layer, what I was going to say. Think of the stake and so, in the
3: investment that government and other you know. large corporations have in companies like Nestlé. They say, "Okay, well you're going to use our land's resources, so you're going to pay us a portion of it." So they're not going to they're not going to penalize that production. They're going to let it keep going. They're going to create a legislation to make it look good and look like they're doing something about it, but they're still going to let it keep happening.
2: Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's just, like, I don't understand why it feels as though pe- it's so harsh when it comes to, like, an individual or, you know, yeah. something like that. And when it comes to a company, it's just, like, oh, you're so cute. Look at
3: you disobeying me. Because it's, yeah, it's, they have, they get benefits from, from all this happening. They don't benefit when 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 we get penalized. I mean, they do, but in different ways.
0: Yeah. Okay, that well, was my first brain teaser question. I have more coming, so...
3: Yeah, this is, this is just such an unjust amount of, you know, pure and clean and valuable water taken directly from underground aquifers that will never be replenished. Um, by doing this, Nestle is taking advantage of the fact that Ontario's regulations kind of suck at actually regulating behavior like this that allows commercial water bottlers to keep um, pumping out and bottling groundwater even after their permits expire. Now, this legislation I'm talking about actually... Um, allows companies like Nestle to continue to pump water on expired permits if they submit their application before the permit expires, like I said before. But this extremely problematic legislation allows the pumping of groundwater to continue without community input, without the free prior and informed consent of First Nations like Six Nations of the Grand River, and without consideration of the impacts on climate change and adequate data on water availability and future demands. In addition to that is the plastic pollution that Nestle is entirely responsible for. I think it is pretty well known that Nestle is in the business of selling plastic and not water. Um, and what I mean by that is Nestle makes billions of dollars every year, but they only pay a fraction of that to actually produce their product. Um, I'll use British Columbia as an example. So Nestle pays the BC government about $2 and 25 cents for every 1 million liters of water, which works out to again, about $560 each year. Um, And that is such an incredibly small number for the amount of money that the company makes on an annual basis. Um, I just, I can't believe it. (laughs) Um, And obviously that's just one province, but the rates across Canada are, you know, pretty consistent with that. Um, Even in the States too, it's relatively consistent.
2: I'm so so sorry. They pay $2.25 for For 1 million liters of water and I have to pay $1.25 for one liter? Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that might even be on sale that price for you. Like
2: I don't want to be here, <laughs> probably.
3: Anymore.
2: Yeah, it's because of the plastic. It's that's the what plastic I'm
3: saying. Room. Like it's literally the plastic that they're selling. They pay nothing for their water. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
2: well, I wonder
0: if the paper and the glue cost more than the plastic, because plastic's mm. cheap, but paper is expensive, and printing on paper is expensive too. It's a
3: good thought. A final point I want to make about Nestle and their plastic, though, is that Nestle, you know, along with other big name companies like PepsiCo and Coca-Cola, they've repeatedly been named um, the world's top plastic polluters, like year after year, consistently topping the charts. So where does the plastic actually end up? Does Nestle aid in collecting the plastic or do they just rely on municipal recycling? Well... Nestle's website says they, quote, work collaboratively with industry, local, and national governments, civil society, and consumers, unquote, as their plan to help with recycling their plastics around the world. Um, In a 2020 statement, Nestle also said the company was making, quote, unquote, meaningful progress. In, a sustainable, in sustainable packaging. Um, they said they are intensifying their actions to make 100% of their packaging recyclable or reusable by 2025 and attempting to reduce the use of virgin plastics by one-third, also by 2025. So, sounds like a lot of your generic, um, I'm going to say greenwashing, um, but very aspirational goals, um, considering we're only about four years out from that now. And I haven't been able to find much progress on those targets yet, so we will be keeping an eye on you, Nestle. Watch out.
0: I will agree, because when I was reading like Nestle's um, website, I thought they did an interesting job because they were so thorough of trying to seem like they were ahead of the ball and trying to seem like they were very innovative in their actions. And I'm not saying they're not innovative, I'm just saying it seemed like... Very um, aspirational. Yeah. So that's a perfect way of putting it, because on their FAQ page, it was repetitive in the fact of, like, who they're partnering with. So it's like, we're collaborating with, like, everyone you just said, Taylor, like, communities, government bodies, corporations, etc. Um, their partnerships with Loop and Tarot Cycle, I think they mentioned that every other, like, question that they answered on their website, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not bashing Loop or TerraCycle; like, I love them, but I'm just saying, like... We you mention it once or twice, we get it. You don't have to keep saying the same thing every other question.
3: It's likely and because that's their only like real initiative, right? Real partnership.
0: It is actually a pretty impressive feat, though, because I know like the mission for like Loop and TerraCycle is a- is actually pretty interesting, mm-hmm. and they are just getting up and running, so it is exciting. But again, like you mentioned, it once or twice, pretty lengthy. Like we understand. Um, and also, like their multi billion dollar investments that they were doing overseas, they also mentioned that like over a handful of times. And then also, how they believe in EPR so that's extended producer responsibility. So that goes into like um, their plastic pollution. Who's responsible for that waste management? Is it like cities or is it not? So, with EPR, it's like becoming the producers to be fully responsible to pay for these streams. Um, Which doesn't thought, hold
3: Nestle accountable then for anything. No, no, it
0: does. <laughs> Because
3: they're the producers, so they'd have to pay for the waste management. Oh, gotcha, yeah, So, like,
0: instead of, like, uh, taxpayers paying for, like, say, Blue Box, they would be paying for Blue Box. Right. But then the question just becomes, like, everything that was allowed in, what is allowed fully in the Blue Box, and how do the different producers decide who gets, who pays for that program equally, if they accept, like, a bunch of different materials. Anyways, the one thing that I thought that was interesting, though, that they put uh, a stress on was consumer education via proper recycling practices, and what's so interesting about that is that there's different recycling practices everywhere. Like, different cities are different. Like, that's a pretty big feat to overcome, and so I'm just curious, like, how they're planning to do that, when recycling practices might not even be a priority for different people, depending where you live. So... Anyway, so the sense I got and what I'd love to discuss like with among us is it seems like a lot of effort is being put on developing end markets for recycling materials to tailor like what those goals you had mentioned that they have. Um so don't get me wrong, re- like recycling goals and like developing these end markets is good, but it seems like they just stops. It's like when I was reading it, it seems like we're going to develop all these end markets and recycle and we're going to have all these goals by 2025, 2030 and then boom, problem solved circular economy is not created and i don't exactly i don't see like what comes next so like how does nestle plan to work with each and every community it touches to create an improved waste collection system when they can't even work with those cities to get their um to get out of the queue line for like these grants like i just don't understand how that's supposed to work um i also just don't understand like I don't know. I, I do they get a pass by saying all this information on their FAQ page, but then because they said they partner with different initiatives. So like one one initiative that is cool is Project Stop that they're working with, which is a frontline action to stop ocean plastic over seas. So it's just great partnership, but does that give them like the cherry on top of the cake? It's like, "Oh, you're doing great. Like, we believe that you're going to take the initiatives in our own community." So, like, I know that change can't happen overnight without a very hefty price tag that the four of us cannot afford, but (laughs) um, switching to, like, recycled content isn't the catch-all solution. So, and partnerships can only reach the markets which they are currently active in, and EPR programs are still in the works and still have the possibility to increase the price um, on the consumer if product prices have to be increased to pay for these systems so like what can we do in the meantime what is some out of the box creative thinking and yes out of the box thinking is my tagline for today's episode (laughs) (laughs) so that was a mouthful but like out of everything we've like heard so far like what do we think can actually come for a solution for at least like their plastic pollution and how they say they want to educate us on proper recycling and how they want to reinvent the recycling end market like what would we expect out of them
3: so that's a loaded question
0: yeah i know Um, i was just thinking and my fingers just took all the thoughts out of my brain and put it on this group (laughs) doc we have i think it's pretty interesting though because it asks a lot of questions we might be thinking when we read their website
3: i think it just goes back to um like what we said before about you know Nestle needing to be responsible for their products, um, but then again, like how I don't know, like how do you how do you make sure that their products are properly recycled in I each community it, all around the world? Like it has to be something set up by Nestle and mm-hmm. like not necessarily like a recycling pro- maybe a recycling program. I don't know.
0: I think it almost has to come down ultimately to respect, and I, I'm not saying Nestle doesn't respect. Like the communities they work in I'm just saying like it has to come down to Respecting the material you use For your products and respecting What the product brings To you when you purchase it And then respecting what you have to do With the product In order to keep this cycle alive Of accessible bottled water You know so I think With that mindset we'll be able To come together Everyone at the table And then create like A very efficient system that's able to collect all these, example like water bottles, and then um, and how we can either remanufacture the plastic to make recycled PET or um, find a new way to have like an efficient waste management system throughout like entire like different provinces, states, like countries that can still all work collectively towards the common goal, which is to not have plastic end up in our landfills, and our waterways, or in our forestry. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what it comes down to it.
3: And <sighs> Nestle, take notes if you're listening. <laughs>
2: <laughs> would you guys – sorry, this is probably diverting the conversation. Go ahead, but no. Would you – because based off of our educational background, what we know and how our information could potentially help companies become more green – would if like taylor with all that information you just had if nestle or coca-cola wanted to hire you would you feel comfortable working for that company to try and make them more green of course or would would you would you say like thank you for asking but i know you're not going to do it
0: um no i don't think you should shut down anybody just from what you can read online like you really don't know what's happening behind you don't know what roadblocks they themselves as a company may be running into so the whole point of me joining this podcast was to make environmental education um, accessible and entertaining and the accessible point is by not shutting down anybody so even though Mm -hmm. these companies were thinking like oh we're calling out like these corporate companies they're so greedy blah 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 it's like
3: we're doing it for a good reason
0: we're yeah we're calling them out but it's only because like um we want them to at, be better yeah we want mm-hmm. them to be better because like they're an essential part of our ecosystem as a human society yeah you know and like, they're not they're just gonna go vital. away they're
3: huge companies exactly like-, like nestle
0: like again they provide water to a bunch of different communities who may not have like like a lake nearby to get fresh water you know um yeah. like uh automobiles like who The way cities are planned out, we kind of rely on cars nowadays. And with the way the trends are going, a lot of EV models are going to be coming out. So maybe that can kind of transition into different kinds of um, transportation. And then health and beauty, we're always looking for a way to make sure that what we put on our bodies is just as healthy as what we would love to eat and feed our bodies. So I don't think in the realm of environmental or... um, eco-conscious you can shut anybody out i think that has mm-hmm. to be like one big collaborative table and that means working with the people like the goliaths you may think they're a goliath but they're really just the david in their own story
2: oh i great think reference. you answered that phenomenally yeah that and was you fantastic. definitely i think spoke for all of us with those very <laughs> wise words that yeah. was insane well done. sorry that was incredible thanks guys
3: all right oh, I'm going to move on to another big conglomerate that I want to call the fuck out, Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola has been accused of many, many unethical things in the past, including, you know, product safety, racial discrimination, distributor conflicts, intimidation of union workers, uh, pollution, depletion of natural resources, and so many health concerns. But in my opinion... Nothing is worse than the accusations that Coca-Cola has actively dehydrated communities in its pursuit of water resources to feed its own production plants, drying up farmer's wells, and destroying local agriculture. Sorry, I'm tripping out over the way I just said that word, agriculture. <laughs> um, oh, it's good. <laughs> How did you I say mean, it? I mean, I don't know. It just didn't oh. sound right.
0: <laughs> to me, it <laughs> sounded that word fine.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wait. <laughs> anyway, that's just, like, these accusations, very unjust. Um... Coca-Cola admits that, you know, without water, it would have no business at all, um, seeing as it takes almost three liters of water to just make one liter of Coca-Cola. And obviously, in order to satisfy this need, they are increasingly taking over control of aquifers and communities all around the world, particularly exploiting regions that already have water shortages and suffer from a lack of water resources and rainfall, such as India, where they have been, you know, countless negative impacts to the local communities. Um, A really big example of this is, again, in India, official documents from the Indian government's water ministry show that water levels remained stable from 1995 until 2000, when the Coca-Cola plant became operational in that area. Um, When that happened, water levels dropped by almost 10 meters over the following five years, and locals feared that their communities would become, you know, dark zones, um, which is the term used to describe areas that are abandoned and and just completely diminished due to depleted water resources. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that really shows the severity of Coca-Cola's impact on you know already water scarce regions and their complete disregard for environmental protection or you know social well being of those communities. That just that hurts. It hurts to hear that.
0: That is a jaw dropper. I know uh, mm-hmm. situation for sure. I I can't even imagine living and being put through that. Um, but just to like really hit the nail on its head to drive this point home, I have a similar situation uh, as an example. And so just a quick little background. Um, so there are cities that are affected by the drought brought on by Coca-Cola, and so citizens have been turning to drink soda in replacement of water. So, this is creating outbreaks of diabetes. Um, there was an article that I found that uh, dated this back. In 2018, the residents of the town San Cristobal identified that the Coca-Cola factory is the reason for, quote, dual crisis of the diabetes epidemic and the chronic water shortage. Damn.
3: End quote. Damn.
0: So, yeah. Um, that's a that's a big Yikes as an understatement Uh so the plant had permits to extract more than 300,000 gallons which is about
3: over a million mm,
0: yeah that's like 1.14 million liters of water a day which is part of you guessed it a decades-old deal with the federal government so um the question now becomes again like how do citizens fight against a government body who is not looking out for them in the most basic sense of fight and of fighting against corporations who take advantage and continuously look out for the bottom line
3: that's hard it's like it's like literally fighting a brick wall i think man. it
0: i just don't understand it comes back to like our first example of like back in um in ontario right these permits are being expired but because there's like a loophole it's like as long as like you're trying to renew your permit by a certain date like you're fine and you can keep working and i think that has to just be shut down point blank so that that cannot be happy anymore and our resources all over the world can't be exploited at this extremely intense and what seems to be increasing
3: yeah but- like it, it can't go on forever there's only so much water and not and a lot thing, left, man. And
0: I just don't understand what the long term plan is. Like we only have so much water and so yeah. much drinkable water. It feels
3: like a lot of these like companies and, and even legislations are like, ah, deal with it when it happens. Like yeah. mm-hmm. you know? There's no I'm really scared it's plan. like
0: it's not happening in my lifetime. We don't have to worry about it. I'm just but trying to get is. to the next election type of mind frame. Yeah. But I don't I don't mm-hmm.
2: know. Honestly, when it comes to like your main question which was like you said how do citizens fight against a government body who's not really doesn't have their best interests at heart or is not making agreements that protect the people in certain circumstances like I feel like that's where grassroots organizations that's where they take the brunt of the work because one you have to make it known because these people are suffering they might not have the time and effort to try and fight for for whatever they need, right? Like, it's like a hierarchy of needs, right? You have to make sure that you're taken care of. And if you still have to work and feed your family and fight diabetes and, you know, lack of access to clean resources or clean water, that's a lot on anyone's plate that I couldn't imagine. And that's my privilege speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so like making sure that we educate people and see what organizations are going on on the, on the, on the on the citizen level to see what what calls for help or calls to action they've requested of us like i feel like that's the best way to support support the citizens to try and help find ways to hold governments accountable or at least make their voices unignorable you know and get like Like, a starting
0: point of like where action can be taken and how to be the most useful exactly (laughs) but
2: really tapping into those communities first and not as in like oh that's a that's a pun tapping in tapping Hmm. into what their needs are and list like how like what what do you need fixed first how do we help you what are the systems and uh hierarchies that are within that government structure that that you've asked us to help us with and like also just like making everyone known. It's harder for these companies to continue with these atrocities or for governments to continue with these atrocities if people know that they're happening. Although there are still examples of people knowing and they get away with it anyways, but you have to try. You can't just leave it on, oh, well, the worst is going to happen anyways. You gotta, you gotta try. Mm-hmm. I, I said- hope that helped.
0: No, it was well that said. was not well it, said. It, well, it answered it the was, question that I was just it, trying to like yeah. get out of my <laughs> no. Uh, that was well word said. moment. But um. I like
2: that you
3: said make their voices unignorable. Like that's such a huge part of it.
2: Yeah, I think the worst part is is when I don't know if I want to get into this with this question, but like when you know someone like me, I'm privileged, I'm white, I have my master's degree, and I think I have the answers. And someone goes in and goes, "Here's how we're going to fix this issue." <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. No. That's not how we're gonna fix this issue. So like the only words of advice I have is like educate yourself, educate on what they're saying they need and what opportunities they've identified to better their position or what roads or mechanisms they've chosen to engage with to try and fi- and address the problem. Like mm-hmm. that's the starting point, I think. Yeah. Does that make I sense? I think you're absolutely I... right.
3: No no no, that's right. No, you're right on the sure. nose. So I also mentioned Coca-Cola earlier as being in the rankings with Nestle and PepsiCo for the world's biggest plastic polluters. And actually, Coca-Cola takes the cake in the number one spot. Um, After an annual audit from the environmental organization called Break Free from Plastic, it was shown that Coca-Cola beverage bottles were the most frequently found discarded on beaches, rivers, and parks, um, and other litter sites in 51 of the 55 nations surveyed. And when you look at the numbers, Coca-Cola's litter is actually far worse than PepsiCo and Nestle's combined, with Coca-Cola branding found on almost fourteen thousand pieces of plastic compared to PepsiCo branding on just over five thousand and Nestle branding on eight thousand. Um, pretty big numbers, yeah. But more research from the NGO Tier Fund found that Coca-Cola has the biggest plastic pollution footprint, creating over two hundred thousand tons of plastic waste. Or about 8 billion bottles, which is just burned or dumped each year in countries like China, India, and the Philippines, um, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, all these countries just getting all our waste. Um, and to put it into perspective, you know, this amount of waste is enough to cover 33 football fields every day. Tearfund Fund also found that the emissions produced from the open burning of Coca-Cola, Nestle, and PepsiCo's plastic packaging on street corners, open dumps, and in backyards in developing countries was a major contribution to the climate emergency, obviously. But again, are they doing anything about it? Likely not. Um, A quick search of their website, you know, showed me the same type of lofty responses as Nestle's. Um, Coca-Cola claims that they have a target of 20% reduction in its use of virgin plastics in the U.S., Um, And they also claim that they use recycled bottles through their bottle-to-bottle recycling in order to, quote, shift as much of their packaging to recycled content as possible in order to reduce its annual greenhouse gas emissions by 20,000 metric tons, unquote. Um, Like all good greenwashing scams, these are words that people want to (laughs) hear. But when Coca-Cola produces, you know, 3,400 plastic bottles every second, um, measures like this are simply not enough. They can mm-hmm. they can say all they want about emissions reduction and plastic recycling being their top priorities, but at the end of the day, they will still remain the largest plastic polluter. So that wraps up my call out for now. Um, I think the thing that kind of hurts most about how evil and unethical and downright shitty these companies are is just that they do all this bad stuff despite knowing that it's wrong um despite knowing that their waste isn't properly managed and their packaging therefore becomes pollution which causes serious harm to the environment and people's health um like it's it's 2021 you know no one is unaware of the climate crisis is unaware of what's going on all around the world um it's just it's inexcusable anymore actions like Actions like the ones that Nestle and Coca-Cola and, and so many other big names are actively taking part in are conscious decisions. Um, there is not one fiber of my being that thinks that these are just, you know, little oopsies or little slip ups from the company. No, they know what they're doing and they're doing it anyway. That is morally inexcusable.
0: Okay, so I think just to, like, close this all off, because I know all my questions get wordy, but it's because I have to explain my train of thought. So back to, like, my, um, like, what is the long-term plan? Like, very hypothetical question. Like, um, and what happens when there's, like, no more water? And then, but my, my that led to, Um, What is it impossible to filter out microplastics from drinking water? Because we're seeing a lot more microplastics turn up, not only in humans, fetuses, the food we eat, (laughs) but it's um, coming up a lot more. So I think it's going to be a pressing issue uh, soon. So, for instance, um, on Nestle's website, at the time of researching for this episode, they have one page dedicated to testing for microplastics, and on that page there are four sentences in total which basically say what microplastics are, and don't worry everything is chill with Nestle products <laughs> now
2: uh,
0: back in 2017, so yes four years have um come and gone since this article in 2017, microplastics were found in both Nestle and Coca-Cola products. Mm-hmm. So um, microplastics showed up in all types of plastics used to manufacture the bottle, being polypropylene, polyesterine, nylon, and polyethylene tetrapethylate, which is PET, the main plastic used for these bottles. So the study, which, uh, which was performed by ORB, quote, found, on average, there were 10.4 particles of plastic per liter that were 100 microns, so 0.10 millimeters or bigger. Um, And this is double the level of microplastics in the tap water tested for more than a dozen countries across five continents, end quotes. So, what do we do? <laughs> because this is a very pressing problem that I'm, I'm very, very nervous for. Uh, so how do we make companies see the importance of eliminating plastic, not just in terms of recycling for better waste management, for but really for public health and safety moving forward? Wow. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm not expecting an answer for any of these questions that I'm asking today. I'm mainly just asking them as a little bit of a brain teaser, uh-huh. yeah. Um, to Very like as like a as like a, as a to plant a seed in the back of our heads, like to just like think when we see these products, just to have this knowledge, um, just so we can kind of question everything. So when we continue to like just you know go on with our lives, we can just um, kind of go. Hmm, I wonder what happens. Like, in the beginning of this bottle's life cycle. I wonder where it's going to end up. I wonder if it's going to end up being recycled and remanufactured. Is it going to end up, I don't want to be, like, dark, but is it going to end up in a bird's stomach? Is it going to end up, like, just, like, completely broken down and we can't see it and it's just kind of, like, floating in the oceans or in our lakes or whatever? That kept me up for a little bit, actually, (laughs) writing this question. (laughs) So I'm just going to leave it at that. But I think that's yeah. the most important thing is like not just moving from like, we have to recycle so we don't landfill, but we have to also have better waste management just so that we can continue to be healthy and safe for everybody on the planet.
2: I think this really leads well into the topic and conversation of environmental rights and justice. So one of the biggest things is like, if we were to look at environmental rights, a lot of the time people think about um, just like oh, like let's not cut down a forest. We need that for X, Y, and Z. But environmental rights also lends itself to right to a healthy in- environment, mm-hmm. and also that has started showing up in court cases um, from like toxicology reports, pollution, where certain chemicals or um, even microplastics one day potentially is the producers of those to- like. Harmful chemicals are being held accountable for, for example, increased rates in breast cancer, and you can actually sue them for infringing on your right to a healthy environment or whatnot. And so this is an area of law that is being explored. It's a area of legislation that's trying to be built upon. So SEPA is one piece of legislation that in the next few years or even the next year, really keep an eye on because people are working so hard to try and strengthen it so that people can find justice through environmental rights so for example like your question was how do we make companies see the importance of eliminating plastic um like eliminating plastic either use or not by you know making it so that there is a threshold you cannot sell a product if it has a microplastic count going over a certain um I don't know, like threshold or whatnot and having punishments for that. And that can all be done through environmental rights legislation. And it's really cool. And it's really like on the forefront of people's minds. And in the next, I know in the next federal election, it's something that is being con- like con- talked about a lot and is being lobbied hard is uh, strengthening SEPA, passing Bill C-230, which talks about environmental racism and environmental rights and justice. Um, all of these things come together. And people are pushing it by focusing on health because, you know, environment can be a pretty polarizing topic somehow, whether you have conservatives, liberals, whatever party you apply to. But if you relate it to something that everyone, regardless of like politics, have experienced like breast cancer or cancer period or certain health impacts... Nobody wants that regardless. So when you tie all of these things back to how it actually plays out in like the human experience, um, that's when you start to see people taking it seriously because nobody wants breast cancer. Nobody wants. And so, so far that's been working really well with uh, chemical pollution and, you know, toxic waste sites. And it's, you can, there's quite a few cases out there and successful ones too at that. So who's to say it can't extend to microplastics and who's to say it won't? Because, like... Definitely should. It should.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it's becoming such a forefront. Ooh, what a good question yeah. to end the podcast on, then. <laughs> Some good news finally <laughs> to end the podcast great, on.
1: That was a great point to end on. That was beautifully tied. Perfect. I love that.
0: All right. Well... This week we covered a lot of ground. Greenwashing is unfortunately a common practice. The trick to seeing what's really happening requires some digging, which is unfortunate. Um, It's unfortunate that ethics seems to fail in what we consumers understand to be environmentally friendly or eco-conscious, and considering what definitions various corporations operate on are completely different. In the new era of sustainable living, it's vital for everyone to do their part. And although we here at Green and Gritty preach that action should not be reliant on the individual layer, it is up to us to be responsible consumers. Meaning if you're going to align with a brand or purchase a certain product, to make sure that you do your best to know the impact of that purchase. It's clear that brands across all industries, beauty, food, automotives, all take part in some degree of greenwashing. So the question becomes, what do we do? as society and consumers to stop this? Is it fines or is it regulation? Or is it something else entirely? Hopefully something in our discussion today sparked some ideas and if not, at least got you all thinking a little bit more
3: gritty. And if there was anything we talked about today that sparked your interest or got your research juices flowing, head over to our website and you can find the sources we each used in today's episode.
0: And as always, thank you for joining us in our little corner of the internet. You can find us on our Instagram at Green and Gritty Podcast or on our Facebook at Green and Gritty. We would love to hear from all of our incredibly brilliant listeners.
2: All right, so this is Green and Gritty signing out. Bye! Bye.